Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hi everyone. I'm sorry for the delay in releasing this episode. I moved house last week, so I've gone from sitting in a big pile of boxes in one house to sitting in a big pile of boxes in a new house. If one goes to plan here, I will have my own library stroke studio space with Star Wars art and lightsabers on the wall. Right on top of the move has been Easter. Hopefully this show is worth the wait. A thing I do need to point out is that my studio is in a new room and it might take some time to get the audio settings properly adjusted for the new environment. Lots of hard wood and glass in this room means it has a bit more brightness and echo. Hopefully the sound quality is fine, but any feedback would be appreciated. I'd like to welcome new patron Glenn Wilson, who has become a respectable governess, and Mathilda McNutt, who has become a lovable chimney sweep. Next up are some listener reviews. First, from author Cody C. Engdahl, USA, five star, quote, Chris Fernandez Packham is a gifted storyteller and a thorough researcher. He not only narrates the events of this fascinating age, but brings you in on an emotional level. He has an amazing ability to make you feel what it must have been like to have been human in this time. You can truly empathise with the colourful characters as he weaves their stories into the bigger picture. This was the podcast I didn't know I was looking for. I'm a historical novelist, currently writing a series about the American Civil War. I listen to a lot of podcasts about this age to give me context and keep my mind in the 19th century. The Age of Victoria podcast followed me one day on Twitter. I immediately followed back and started listening. What an absolute treasure. Interesting, entertaining and well-researched. Most of all, Chris has a wonderful voice, like a warm cup of tea sweetened with honey. I hope he'll forgive me, but he sounds a bit like the late, great Marty Feldman. Anyway, stop reading my dumb review and give it a listen. End quote. That's one of the nicest reviews I've ever had, and it made me well up a bit in these tough times. I'd recommend grabbing some of Cody's books, especially if you are interested in the US Civil War. He is also a whiskey connoisseur, which is another good mark in my book. It is very sweet to be compared to Marty Feldman. He was a comic genius of the highest order, and the sketches he did with John Cleese from Monty Python were brilliant. Just the two of them in a railway carriage, John playing the straight man and trying to keep a straight face as Marty delivers a scenery-chewing performance that summed up every bad plane or train journey you've ever had stuck next to the passenger from hell. Here's a snippet of his Christmas sketch, so you can decide for yourselves if I sound like him. Next review is from Annie HW, USA, five star. Quote, I love history and have been curious about this time period. Cannot recommend highly enough. End quote. Thank you, Annie. Next up is Dennis in Sweden, five star. Quote, Just started listening and the dedication that goes into it is phenomenal. To go back and re-record episodes is a testament to this. End quote. Thank you. This podcast is definitely one of the great loves of my life, 
and I'm glad to hear the work is appreciated. Lastly, from Stupak 1985, quote, Chris has a lovely voice. His podcast is now well edited, and it's an accurate description of Victorian England, but can be quite light-hearted at times. It makes a fantastic listen for a Sunday walk. I can almost hear Chris reading this review in my head. End quote. Podcasts and walks are made for each other. My new house is near a nice wood, so I'm exploring some trails, listening to David Crowther's History of England and Jenny's Australian Histories podcast. Last episode, we saw the journey of two convicts, Hannah Herbert and Linus Wilson Miller, to Van Diemen's land. Today, we will be talking about punishment, and specifically prison in Van Diemen's land. I really want to impress on you that prisons are much more than just walls, guards, prisoners and cells. They are complex structures. They are economic communities, develop their own cultures and also service wider society. They embody the prevailing attitudes around crime, punishment, rehabilitation and redemption. They are also industrial and economic units in their own way. The labour they provide is state-subsidised and well below the wage costs of the surrounding communities. They can provide jobs to an area, but simultaneously undercut other sectors like construction by using their convict slave labour to underbid local constructors. An unscrupulous governor might even take bribes from local constructors to not bid on contracts so that they can get them for themselves, which you might remember seeing in the excellent film The Shawshank Redemption. The goods produced by prisons can be used in a variety of ways, and Victorian prisons had a close relationship with the Royal Navy, providing it with materials, and sometimes even repair facilities. This episode has actually changed a lot as I wrote it. I started out with the idea of telling the gripping story of the prison hell, Port Arthur. I'll still tell you that, but as I kept writing, philosophical questions kept pushing their way in, asking, why though? Why build a hellish prison? Why do we treat criminals like we do? Was there more to all this than a just lock them up and throw away the key attitude? Where does civilization fit in if it is creating a hell for the vulnerable? So you will get the prison story, but you are going to get some more difficult questions posed. I don't have all the answers. After all, people have written about justice, prisons, punishment, and redemption for centuries. What I hope you get today is things to ponder as we learn about this unique prison. Hannah Herbert was joining an uneasy melting pot, a remote island at the edge of the world, filmed by convicts and turned into a prison hell, mixed with optimistic settlers, civil administrators, army and navy personnel, stowaways, whalers like Samoan William Smith, who went on to own several vessels, hunters, deserters, and the ultra-rich, seeking to claim new lands and become land magnates in the new world, fortune hunters, 
naturalists and adventurers also came. There were Spanish and Portuguese whalers and sailors and Maori seal hunters. Convicts were forced to clear land to allow the free settlers to take possession, but they, when their sentence was up, often got land or jobs themselves. Land values began to soar. Productivity leaped. Some of the migrants would move to the mainland continent later in life when the Australian gold rush started. It was a world away from the strict Georgian and Victorian hierarchy in mainland Britain. Here, a person could change what was written in their stars. Populations intermingled. Convicts had families with indigenous peoples who hadn't been deported. New immigrants arrived from Scotland and Ireland, and then later from other countries. Hannah had to create her new identity. That's really hard. Our identities are complex, multi-layered things, both individual and communal. They are not innate, but self-created, yet also imposed by society. And they are our reaction to society. For the Victorians, society and community counted for much more than in the atomized, individualist society of today. Hannah would have understood her place, not just in the social hierarchy, but also in terms of her connections to places and customs in England. Not only did she have to adjust to the loss of that identity as she transitioned from person to convict, but she had to do so in an utterly alien land. She had to reorient her understanding of the world and her place in it, then relate that to other people at a time when the identity of the wider community she had arrived in was in constant flux. Would Van Diemen's land stay a convict-filled hell? Were they English anymore? Was she even really a woman? as the Victorians understood it anymore, cut off from the feminine world of Victorian Britain. What about the future? Would it just mean a sudden death? Would they all starve? Was it even worth trying? What about the richer settlers? How should she relate to them? Was she cast out of her class? Worse, was she cast out of the Christian community twice, once for her crime, and now by living in a land that wasn't Christian, one unmentioned even in the Bible? Or was this an opportunity? A new world and a new start, more freedom in some ways, from older customs and structures, a chance to escape. Hannah Herbert survived the journey to Van Diemen's land. It wasn't viewed in the same light as the colonies on the mainland of Australia. It was seen as a purely harsh penal colony, usually for the worst of the worst, fit only for whaling, logging pine and dumping convicts. Her fate depended on how she navigated life in a precarious settlement where conditions were not only utterly alien to a poor English city girl, but also notoriously harsh for the convicts. Feared above all in Van Diemen's land was Port Arthur Prison. The site was on a peninsula, surrounded by rocks, sea and sharks. By 1848, Port Arthur would include the dreaded 
silent prison. This was where the very worst of the worst were sent to be broken. Not in body, though. The authorities didn't need to break bodies. That was viewed as ineffective and wasteful. Instead, they aimed to break people's minds. The prison operated the silent system. The authorities in America used the system from 1829, and it had become world famous at the Eastern State Penitentiary, better known as Philadelphia Prison. Dickens famously visited it in 1842 and wrote a scathing denunciation of the silent system, which drove him to rage. Before we can talk about this specific prison, we need to talk about the prison experience in general. Some of my listeners, like Rob from Australia, will have visited Port Arthur itself. If you have visited it, or any historical prison site, you might have looked around and thought, it seems so quiet and peaceful now. I bet it was awful back then though. That shows the huge gap we have when studying history in prisons. Our experiences of the places in the now shapes how we view them as outsiders. When you visit an old prison, it's changed over time anyway. And at any time you like, you can say, it must have been awful. Imagine being stuck in there. Tell me what, let's head for the cafe for some tea and a biscuit. Besides, I need the loo. Prisons were unique though, as the people who lived in them were trapped there. The experience of visiting a prison is not the same as being locked in and not allowed to leave until the date a distant judge has set for you. My own visit to Wandsworth Prison was both fascinating to see a Victorian prison built in 1851, still in use for modern prisoners, but also stifling as the air is stagnant, the lighting harsh, and the cells tiny, built for single Victorian prisoners, now filled with bigger modern prisoners, tightly packed in. Like Sir Terry Pratchett once said, roughing it is all good fun when you have a warm bath and comfy bed to go back to. It's not so great when you're in the cold, muddy field every day, and that's it. Even a modern prison is isolated to a degree, with contact strictly regulated. Many prisoners report about feeling the world outside them is speeding past without them. Boredom and even malnutrition are also major problems, even in modern prisons. On top of the problems with crime, there are those who are suffering from mental illness. This isn't an inevitable trigger to causing crime, so please don't associate mental health conditions with automatic criminality. What it can be is a significant factor. Some prisoners have complex mental health needs that are entirely unrelated to their offending, and it shouldn't surprise anyone that prisoners and prisons are exceptionally bad at dealing with mental illness. What prisons are very good at is making people's mental health worse. Policy Director of Mind, Sophie Corlett, gave evidence to the Joint Committee on Human Rights, quote, from the evidence, it appears that people with serious mental health problems become more ill, and it would appear that people 
who have less severe mental health problems in prison develop more severe mental health problems. Prison appears to be a good greenhouse for developing mental health problems. End quote. In their final report, the committee stated quote, The evidence we have gathered suggests that prison actually leads to an acute worsening of mental health problems by sending people with a history of attempted suicide and mental health problems to prison for minor offences, the state is placing them in an environment that is proven to be dangerous to their health and well-being, end quote. It is all too easy to think that prisoners are all dangerous people who need to be kept locked up to protect society. But the reality was that a lot of Victorian prisoners were there for what we would regard as minor property crimes. In December 1840, for instance, Irishman Patrick Bannon was transported to Van Diemen's Land to serve a 10-year sentence for stealing a heifer. Does that 10-year sentence sound proportionate to the crime? Would it turn him from a dangerous cow-stealing criminal to a productive member of society? Patrick never got the chance to show us as he drowned in 1843, only three years into his sentence. Or what about deserter William Bamford, given seven years for his 12 days AWOL? Or William Gallaghan, soldier in the 15th Hussars in India, sentenced to seven years for shooting a bullock? The same ship he went on carried Edward McGrath from the same regiment and convicted of the same crime. Not to forget another soldier sentenced in India, John Wallace of the 17th, convicted by the Bombay Supreme Court of robbing a black man. All these men were on the same ship, the British Sovereign, and all appear to have been Irish. Soldiers seemed a popular choice to transport in 1840, as I found them in a lot of other ships around the time. Servants were highly represented amongst the female convicts, including Mary de Moline, who embodied a cliché as she was sentenced to 14 years transportation for stealing a watch. Speaking of the classics, William Ashley was given 15 years for sheep stealing, qualifying him for his trip of a lifetime. At least in his case, we know he was eventually pardoned, married and became a butcher. Nor does the sentence of the prisoner affect just them. Criminals often have highly chaotic lives, and this frequently spills into other people's lives, especially their children's. One convict's story particularly leapt out at me. Not every convict's story had an unhappy ending. In 1918, the Bendigo Town newspaper recorded the death of its oldest citizen, Harry Catlin, aged 91. Quote, Born in London, on Christmas Day 1827 and emigrated to Tasmania when only 14 years of age. He there learned the boot-making trade. End quote. Doesn't emigrated sound nice? Almost as if he had chosen his new life. In fact, he had a terrible start in life. One of seven children, two of his siblings died as infants. For reasons unknown, his father John abandoned his mother Elizabeth 
leaving them to go to the local courts for parish poor relief. His father returned for unknown reasons, but then tried to murder the pregnant Elizabeth. Who knows why? He was drinking heavily at that point, so perhaps he gave in to a murderous rage. Perhaps he suspected the child wasn't his and became violent. We don't know, but it certainly doesn't in any way excuse his horrible crime. What is known is that he argued with her, then followed her into the garden as she fled, punching her so hard she lost consciousness for some time. Witnesses swore he vowed to kill her. He was arrested, jailed for three months, then released on bail, pending trial. Testimony recorded he was a pleasant man when sober, but utterly vicious when drunk. Two years later, he was convicted. He was given one week's hard labour. Compare that to the property crimes like theft we just heard about. The unhappy family carried on and Elizabeth died in 1832. By 1836, the oldest boys were kicked out to fend for themselves. John took the rest of the children to the workhouse in December of 1836. He was soon released and Henry was released from the workhouse the following January, back into the dubious care of his father. He was arrested for the first time in October 1837 for stealing a pair of boots. Standing in the dock, he was nine years old and three foot ten inches tall, completely illiterate. He was sentenced to seven years transportation. Even for 1837, this was considered a shockingly harsh sentence. The chairman of the magistrates was sufficiently concerned to write to the Secretary of State for mercy and commuting the sentence to an English prison. The Secretary of State replied the prison was full and the infant's prison not yet built. So he relied on the judiciary to reconsider in light of these facts. They did and said the correct sentence should have been four months hard labour, with one week a month in solitary confinement, and at least one privately held whipping. On release, the family continued its bitter decline. Eventually, aged 14, Henry was desperate, and tried to rob some schoolgirls of 14 shillings that were part of their collection for Queen Victoria's birthday celebrations. His father ratted him out to the authorities. Henry returned the favour and informed about a robbery committed by his father. And this time, there was no mercy. Henry was labelled a hardened felon and sentenced to 14 years transportation. There has been some suggestion that father and son were so desperate for money and food, they planned the thefts to get themselves transported on the basis at least the government would feed them and put a roof over their heads, or so they thought. When things are so desperate that a Victorian prison is a step up, you know someone's hit rock bottom. Henry was shipped to Van Diemen's land, whilst his father was sent to do hard labour on the prison hulks in the Thames. Finally rid of his degenerate father, at least Henry had the ghost of a chance. John served seven years, was released 
and returned to drinking. Within a year, he was back up in court for threatening to shoot the woman next door. He kept drinking and ended up in the workhouse, finally dying in 1864. Henry got lucky if that's the right word, he was paroled after half his 14-year sentence, aged just 21. He married a woman, Harriet Coffey in Hobart, then two years later got his conditional pardon. He unsuccessfully tried his hand at gold digging, then turned to boot making like his father before him. This kept him afloat and he had nine children. One died an infant and his wife predeceased him by 27 years. One of his children eventually fought in World War I in France. A strange quirk of fate. Henry had never known a happy time in England, yet one of his children volunteered to fight in an imperial war thousands of miles away for an ancestral tie that was increasingly an idea rather than a reality. Yet, Men like John Caitlin, addicted to drink, habitually dishonest, accustomed to robbery and violence, are hard to reform even today. And that's before you look at his pattern of appalling violence to women. In Victorian England, no amount of hopes of Christian redemption, hymns and dubious workhouse charity made a dent in his behaviour. It is questionable whether today... If he was given intensive money-no-object therapy, job support and rehabilitation programs, whether he would actually change to being a better person. There are some people for whom no amount of help or understanding or reform would do any good. And the violence they unleash has to be contained. The damage he did to the people around him, especially Henry and the other children, affected the rest of their lives. Yet, because his crimes were violence, he didn't go to Van Damon's land or prison as he so richly deserved. It was only the theft and crimes against property that seemed to trigger the harsh sentences of the court. An almost universal feeling for prisoners throughout history is one of isolation from society. For a prison like Port Arthur, on the far side of the world from Britain, with few colonists, the remoteness was near absolute. For many prisoners, there's the knowledge that a substantial part of the civilian population doesn't care about their welfare in any way. Broadly speaking, the deprivation of liberty itself was supposed to be the punishment for breaking the law, with any punishments beyond that requiring specific laws. In reality, Many people think prison must not only deprive someone of their liberty, but must also treat them badly whilst they are doing it. To be sent to Port Arthur was to be especially cut off. The geography of Port Arthur Peninsula made it perfect as a prison site. The narrow neck of the peninsula acted as a choke point, preventing easy escape. The site itself is interesting. A common misconception about a prison is that it is only the walls and the guards that are the prison. In fact, any prison is a complex community. And in Port Arthur, the prison was the whole peninsula, not just the walled building at the centre. As Juliet Edikoff notes in her excellent paper, 
Port Arthur, a 19th century landscape, quote, The prison was in fact not the familiar 20th century walled complex of buildings, but the entire 50,000 hectares of the Tasman Peninsula. Its walls were the sea and its gates a narrow sand dune isthmus at the Eaglehawk Neck, which was guarded by chained dogs. Strategically placed throughout the peninsula were prison probation stations, where farming, timber production and mining were carried out. Each station was to some extent independent, with its own infrastructure, social services and industries. Yet, a relatively uniform standard of architectural and engineering works by the military designers and convict labourers prevailed. End quote. Port Arthur had started out as a small timber station in 1833, but as the Black Wars ended, with the indigenous peoples being murdered or resettled, Van Diemen's Land became a colonial society. The governor, Sir George Arthur, decided to develop Port Arthur as a prison. The first known buildings were the prison barracks in 1836, a small set of buildings in the centre of the peninsula built around a prison yard with schoolrooms, a solitary confinement block and a boys' prison section. It was overlooked by the Commandant's house, the military palisade and a semaphore tower, bringing the latest in military communications to the distant imperial outpost. The barracks was later turned over to the army and it is the site of some fascinating archaeological discoveries. There's evidence of cows, sheep, and pigs, but also rats and wallabies, together with pipes, marbles, reading glasses, numerous personal items, buttons, and military kit. It also demonstrated that the known prison hierarchy of trusted prisoners ain't barely any better than the regular commoners. People were hungry enough to break the animal bones and suck out the marrows, and there's indication that food shortages were such a serious problem that even wallabies and rabbits were being found used for food. There is evidence of illicit trade with free settlers and visiting sailors for food, plus some hooks and fishing lines. Early prisoners often ended up chopping wood. If you think that sounds okay, an open-air job swinging an axe, you haven't seen the practicalities of timber production in the early colonial Van Diemen's land. The trees were much larger than the current trees, as they were old-growth forests. They required immense effort to fell, especially in the blazing heat, while suffering desperate thirst and hunger. Then, the enormous trunks had to have their branches removed, before being dragged to the saw pits. The next stage was pure agony, as the huge trunk was sawn by convicts, the top dog on the top of the log and the bottom dog in the pit. He would be under the tree, pulling down the great saw, so he would have been half-blinded with showers of sawdust and dirt. Then, as his hands calloused, he'd find his palms slick with sweat, and maybe his own blood and skin. Nothing could save the pair of dogs if they got their timings or footings wrong. There was the ever-present risk of being crushed by the timbers 
Once the beams were cut, they were shouldered by the gangs of convicts, and the centipede, as the gang was called, slowly snaked their way back to the near waterfront, where the war timber would be fashioned in beams, planks, masts, or spurs. Ironically, many of the buildings used to keep them imprisoned were built using this timber, which also supplied the mighty fleets of the Royal Navy, whose vast reach enabled the colonial empire. If you listen to the last main episode and remember Linus Miller, you can see how privileged he was during his imprisonment and his constant moans about insults to American champions of liberty must have grated the ears of the dogs in the pits. Steam-driven sawmills wouldn't arrive in Port Arthur until the 1850s, but they did arrive, along with trams, railways, and covered saw pits. The old centipede gangs were no longer needed, as the huge timbers could be moved by steam power, allowing prisoners to be sent further out to collect wood. This was a badly needed improvement because fresh transported prisoner numbers were beginning to decline and existing convicts were growing old and frankly worn out by the back-breaking labour. Where the human body failed and the mind broke, capitalist-minded Victorian government turned to machines to keep productivity high. If nothing else, the railway meant the more dangerous sea route for supplies wasn't needed. Besides timber, in the early days of Port Arthur Prison, there was a shipbuilding yard. Many prisoners were highly skilled and not to be wasted in the pits. Carpenters, blacksmiths, coopers, sailmakers, and more besides, had all found themselves in Port Arthur. They made no profit merely sitting in a cell and rotting. Instead, they built. Some of their vessels were highly regarded. It shouldn't surprise listeners that governments and companies worked together to create opportunities for making money from criminal laws, convicts and prisons. The transportation system allowed British governments to profit by using convicts as labour in the new colonies, the West Indies, in much the same way as modern companies offshore the dirty business of production to regions with fewer legal safeguards. This, then, was the prison as an industrial economic unit. Often we think in modern terms of a prison being built, then people being moved in. Port Arthur was growing and being made by the prisoners themselves. They didn't just step off the boat and find a fully built prison ready for them. Instead, they realised that the peninsula was the prison. Every piece of food they grew, every piece of cloth they stitched, was both their freedom from starvation, but also a link in the chains that would hold them. Even with the efforts of the large prison gardens, the prison never had enough food and imported a lot. Combined with ships putting in at the yard, it was clear that a lot of cultural and botanical interchange was being facilitated by the prison. Smoking was common, with plenty of carved pipes being found, so there was at least a market for tobacco amongst the prisoners. By the 1840s, the Royal Engineers brought military discipline and planning to the ongoing development, harnessing the convict labour. 
There were other fascinating aspects feeding the development. The governor, Sir Arthur Franklin, was a keen scientist and explorer, so was involved in botany, scientific agriculture and horticulture. He was also a founder of the Tasmanian Society, later known as the Royal Society, to further scientific study in Van Diemen's land. His wife, Lady Jane Franklin, was a passionate classicist and wanted to create a Renaissance-style colony complete with planned gardens and a Grecian temple. Whether this informed her vile prejudice against distilling whiskey is a question I ponder, but sadly seems unlikely to attract serious historical study. Her design ideas influenced place names and fed into garden designs across the colony, including at Port Arthur Prison. It is curiously reflective of the Arcadian ideas of man taming the savage state into the idealised Greek pastoral rationalist style. Elements of Greek culture seen through the pan-Hellenic lens were being imported and transposed onto a whole new landscape. Others were enthusiastic about a transformation. Camp Commandant William Champ created an ornamental garden for ladies, having plants shipped from England between 1844 and 1848. By the 1850s, the gardens in the prison complex were thriving, according to eyewitness Henry Stanley in 1853, quote, As you proceed and turn through a sweet, embowering arc of the multi-floor rose in all its blooms, a beautiful cottage, Orney opens up to your view. This is the residence of the Controller General. Here you can wander along walks bordered with the rarest shrubs and flowers of our native land. Anon, you are lost beneath the shady foliage of the weeping willows known as Bonaparte's, and under the largest tree of which is the very neat summer house. A sweet little stream runs through the garden, and, with very many trees of dear old England around you, it is easy to forget. Wandering through this beautiful garden that several hundred fellow creatures are in chains so near you, losing their home and liberty from crime, end quote. I find it interesting the first sight the prisoners had as they approached Port Arthur was Dead Island, the tombstone-covered graveyard of the prison. Then on to see the avenue of trees Lady Franklin wanted sweeping up to the church, fully styled in the English Gothic fashion by chief architect and master forger James Blackburn. It was built with convict labour from the boys' prison. The symbolism was unmistakable. Arriving by boat, the prisoners saw death laid out before them with the only view of the church offering salvation. Repent, sinners. The Christian journey to salvation deliberately made a part of the landscape by Lady Franklin and her husband. For an empire builder, the ability to claim they were bringing the unbroken thread of Western classical civilization to the savage world, was an attractive story to tell. To create a slice of the English countryside and ornate gardens thousands of miles away from England and to recreate the core Christian message 
in the landscape must have seemed a triumph of civilization, much more flattering for the supporters of empire than the more accurate accounts of massacres, greed, displaced indigenous peoples and working class people fleeing poverty in Europe. Still, it wasn't a wholly cynical device. There are extremely strong themes of the idealization of Greco-Roman culture and imperialism throughout the Victorian period. Many who claimed to be exporting the greatest civilization on earth genuinely believed it. But bear in mind, there were other themes that competed with this classical ideal. For many intellectuals and artists, the Gothic and the medieval were more attractive models, with the emphasis on untamed nature or courtly romances and Christian imagery. Others wanted to see progress. For them, a new territory was not a place to perfect a vision of the past, but to show a more utopian vision of new frontiers being brought into the industrial age with science, engineering and new forms of government. But don't be misled by the ambitions of Lady Franklin for an Arcadian garden. Historian Benjamin Madley states, quote, Tasmania was probably the most terrifying place a white person could live. It ranks among the most violent of all penal colonies in history. Isolation, official neglect, forced labour, incarceration, torture and executions traumatised convicts and free colonists and hardened both to violence. Simultaneously, officials colonised Tasmania at the expense of Aboriginal land ownership, food supplies and lives. End quote. This does show you need to understand that skin colour was not the only thing determining how people were treated in Van Diemen's land. If you only view colonial development through a racial lens, you will be missing a huge chunk of the picture. There are plenty of accounts of British colonial elites feeling better connected to the upper class elites and the native populations rather than with their own lower class servants. One account from an English lady in India recounts how her lower class white English maid was making fun of her employer's high caste Indian guests and making racist comments. The lady recorded in her diary that she let what she called the ignorant woman talk whilst inwardly scornful and reflecting she had far more respect for her guests than a mere servant. Simply being white British was not enough to elevate the maid to being worthy of polite consideration in the diary, let alone condescending to actually speak to her. For a modern student of the Victorians, this can be a difficult concept to get their heads around. Most modern people are so used to thinking in terms of racial dimensions that they overlook the critical role that class played. The end result was still oppression, but it is important to fully note the elements causing it, not simply select one cause. This was also a problem for the convicts, who were at the very bottom of the class system. To the aristocratic governors of Van Diemen's land, neither the indigenous peoples nor the convicts were high enough on the class system for 
any kind of respect. The dilemma of how to treat prisoners was important for any society, new or old. They were at the bottom of the class system, so disposable. Upper and middle class Victorians felt a social obligation from their own position, though. Those obligations typically included concepts of charity, a degree of temperance, and strong Christian elements, the fallibility of man and his capacity for redemption. This was not a trivial consideration for the religious Victorian society. They fretted anxiously that if they had to follow Christ's example, they had to accept his sacrifice to redeem sin. Christian theology can't function without the concepts of sin and redemption. It followed theologically from that that even the worst sins could be redeemed. Otherwise, the power of Christ or God was limited. Mortal sin was a Catholic concept that didn't fit the Anglican model. If they denied the convict the chance for true redemption, could they really be considered Christians? Opinions varied wildly, of course, and for those of other religions, for the atheists or the disinterested, it was either not an issue or it was a question of public policy. There were a lot of middle-class prison reform movements, usually with strong religious elements. Where middle-class society went, so went the press. The upper classes added the elements of philosophical debate from ancient Greece, or if particularly daring, Enlightenment or French revolutionary ideals. There were a lot of Victorian idealists who didn't like imperialism, but did like classicism, and wanted to see it and the new ideals of the Enlightenment spread to the new colonies. For those more inclined to medievalism, a new world presented a problem since it didn't have the medieval roots to draw on. It was easy for a classicist to transport architecture. It was much harder for a medievalist to ask for a modern patchwork of country manors, villages, maypoles and pageantry. The deliberate construction of churches and buildings in the old English style was a way to link to the old country and the new at least. The common law seemed the biggest exception to the problem of transportation. It had evolved over centuries and was a bedrock of the English and Welsh legal systems. Many reasoned that this was perhaps the true purpose of empire and colonialism, the export of the rule of law. Not everyone in the system was interested in abstractions like this. They only cared that the prisoners were offloaded somewhere and preferably doing something vaguely profitable. But in the end, no matter what their views, everyone knew the prisoners would eventually finish their sentences and something had to happen to them afterwards. See, I warned you a prison was not a simple building with guards and bars. It is a reflection of the competing ideas of the society. In some ways, I believe the prison system is the ultimate test of a society and its capacity to heal itself and those who do evil within it. How we treat the most vulnerable is a reflection of our values, flawed and often competing. It is especially hard when we look at those who 
who clearly could lead better lives, but constantly fall back into crime, it is easy to say a child killer should be imprisoned for life to protect others and reflect justice, but it is harder to decide what to do with the reformed alcoholic drug dealer who swears she wants to change for her children. In fact, even in Tasmania, reform was sweeping through the Victorian criminal justice system. The old punishments of transportation and execution were seen as cruel and out of date. A probation system was considered the way forward, with prisoners ascending a ladder of trust and earned privileges. This meant prison as a building and a concept were taking over. The creation of the main prison building in Port Arthur marked a huge sea change in criminal justice. It was completed in 1848 as those delightful gardens were being planted and was the latest weapon in the war on crime. Victorian Britain were seeing crime rates rocket and people demanded action. In our next main episode, we will find out more about the Port Arthur prison itself and how it operated. That will be in a couple of months time not because I'm taking another break but because we've got yet another anniversary to celebrate so next month we will have the anniversary special I'm looking forward to it I've got a couple of interesting topics to cover and I'm really looking forward to celebrating another year of the podcast I hope you'll join me if you haven't already got your tickets by the way there is still time to get tickets for the Intelligent Speech Conference. And don't forget to use the promo code VICTORIA uh, when you buy your tickets. They are available online and I will put a link up in the Facebook group. Okay, I hope you've enjoyed the show. Thank you for your patience over my delays caused by the move. And I look forward to speaking to you again in the anniversary special. Take care. Bye for now.